Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Marcel. I'm Liz Manischel. This week we have writer and director Reed Schusterman on the show, who is a returning guest, actually. Write what you know is such a cliche. It turns out that it works. I think I wrote that script faster than any script I've ever written. And he's going to talk about his upcoming first feature film, Bloodborne, which will be entering film festival circuit this next year in 2021. And this is a disclaimer. This was recorded way back before the world ended. This is like early February when we're recording this, I believe. And so, yes, just keep that in mind. Like, we're not in a COVID mindset at all in this conversation. Because we're breezy. It, we're it breezy. hasn't happened we're yet. carefree. Life our, was better then. Our whole lives were ahead of us, and nothing <laughs> crazy was was on in, on the horizon. So yeah. But before we get to Reed Schusterman, we have a special guest on the show, John Snyder, to talk about uh, COVID nineteen monitoring and COVID nineteen set safety. John was on a really big budget shoot that just started up again, uh, I guess, a couple weeks ago. So they had two more days left of shooting on their feature when COVID happened. And then they just got back and, and finished it and actually did it in four days just due to uh, all the COVID uh, stuff they had to, to, to follow. But he basically outlines how to do it on a big budget and like what all the steps are. So it's a really, really great little interview, little mini interview before our talk with, with Reed. So um, yeah, let's go straight to John. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. Today, instead of doing network and a Get Shorty segment, we have a very special guest today, a very special surprise. And this is all kind of brought about because I took the COVID-19 compliance officers test this last week, uh, which, Liz, have you heard about this thing? I mean, I've seen people post their certificates on Facebook. That is the extent of my familiarity. Right. I saw that too. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I've done one shoot already. We had a whole bunch of COVID guidelines. We did screenings. We had temperature checks. We did all the things. And like, I haven't taken this test. Like I'm, I'm an idiot. Like I should definitely take this test. So I took it. And then I just asked the internet on Facebook, like people just post the picture and they're like, oh yes, I'm a compliance officer now. Like awesome. But they don't, you know, it's like, it's just to be honest, it's a two hour test, right? Like you just, you do go to a two hour webinar, you take a quiz and then you get a, a thing. It's like the easiest thing in the world to do. And to me, it's like such a bigger thing to actually be a compliance officer. Like it's a huge role and it's a huge thing. So I just put, put a shout out, like who has actually done this? And John Schneider, our guest today responded. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And John actually has some real experience that he can actually share. And I, I freaking asked him a million questions in Facebook messages and he answered all of them. And I just think it'd be great to hear from him live on the show about his experience. So John, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background on how you got into being a COVID-19 safety monitor and, you know, take it from there. You know, I've, I do most of my work um, in the AD department on set. I've been working for the last probably about five and a half years. And I got about 20 days left to finish my book to join the DGA. And I was scheduled to start work on season two of Euphoria back in March, um, kind of when all this COVID stuff was was really hitting hard and things were, were about to shut down. You know, when the shutdown 
hit Hollywood, it shut everything down. I mean, all TV shows, all features, everything, you know, commercials. You know, at this point, there was no stimulus package. There wasn't really a timeline as to like how long this was going to be. Um, HBO told us that we would likely start work again in six to eight weeks. So everybody was kind of hanging back, you know, just waiting to see what happened. You know, this, this is new and nothing like this has ever really happened to our industry. And, you know, things started getting worse with COVID and I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about it really. Um, not only just in how it relates to our work, but just in general for health purposes as a human being, I was like, what is going on? Like, I really, I want to know more about this. So I started doing some research online. I took this contact tracing course um, that's with Johns Hopkins. It's like this 10 hour course. It's pretty easy, um, but it's just, it just offers more information on this. And I had thought, well, maybe I could be a, a contact tracer for work, you know, if, if the film industry doesn't come back, uh, if anything. And so, you know, as the, as the months went on um, and pr productions kept getting delayed and pushed, I, I kind of realized that we weren't going to be going back to work anytime soon. You know, I was wondering what, what things would look like on set if we were to start going back to work during this pandemic. There was a lot of ideas floating around in my head, uh, you know, but until the safe way forward, the, the papers came out, it was kind of difficult to think of a plan that would involve all the guilds and the unions agreeing about what would be kind of, you know, the safest way to move forward, <laughs> I guess, to use the, uh, the title. And the class that you're talking about, um, the one offered by Health Education Services, is specifically geared towards being a, a COVID compliance officer on set, and it takes all of the information that we currently have related to COVID and it kind of aligns that with what would happen on set, you know, and how we could best apply that to safe practices. And since Appendix J um, for the Los Angeles Department of Public Health states that any production uh, shooting during this time has to have a C19CO, which is a COVID compliance officer on set in order to be compliant. So um, while I was looking around and contacting different ADs and producers to see who was gearing up to start work, a friend of mine mentioned that they were working in a new department with a feature that had about four days left of shooting before the lockdown started. So I got on a call with the department head of that team and we spoke for about an hour and a half just kind of regarding uh, what the plan was, as well as what they had been discussing with, you know, network executives for about 10 weeks previous. And, um, you know, they had gotten a lot of people together, um, you know, infectious disease people, military contractors, doctors, nurses, epidemiologists. Um, and, you know, that, that is kind of how I got involved in working on this. You know, in total, our team was about 20 uh, 20 people in the COVID department, not counting um, our infectious disease specialists, um, kind of our, our lead people who were, uh, you know, paramedic fire safety officers, um, some of the military contractors that did the training, but really on the ground, it was kind of a mix of about five set medics and then 15, what you would call COVID monitors. So that was kind of, kind of how I got involved in doing this now when I really come from the AD world. And uh, I found that those skills were just essential in, in, in sort of the creation of this new COVID department, because for, for the scale of what this production was, it has to be its own department. You know, the, the prep that's involved and the implementation, it really, it takes a lot to do it properly and to do it safely, I think. That group of staffers that you just referenced, that was for the indie feature that had four days left to shoot. It's just confirming, or is that- It's for a big uh, big union production. It's a, it's a Netflix feature. 
Got it. Got it. Got it. So considering, you know, a lot of smaller budget productions would love to get going and obviously we want to do so in a very safe manner that number sounds very terrifying right it's very intimidating and we also want to go forward safely and not sound like cheapskates but also like want to figure out the best way to staff our production have you seen any instances of smaller um covid teams or what kind of scenarios have you uh, do you recommend or have you witnessed yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, what the the general consensus is now, I mean, depending on the size of your production and, and, and whatnot, is you want to have one, one COVID-focused person for about every 25 people that you have. If you're going to have less than 25 people or about 25, I think it's really helpful to have, you know, your one made COVID person that's there with, you know, with the planning with all the departments, the locations, anything that might might be involved in that way. And then it would be really helpful to at least have one other person on set that's just plainly focused on COVID protocols because, you know, you've got set, you've got staging, you've got working trucks. You know, if you're going to do like a a run and gun thing with 10 people and you're shooting and you know all those people, you guys have all been tested, you're all on the same page when it comes to, you know, this this compliance. If, you know, if someone has taken the class and has the the COVID information, you know, I think a producer or a director could be the compliance officer in, in that case. But I think as you scale up and the more crew that there is, you really have to account for that. And then, you know, just the, just the safety and the following of protocols. I've seen teams come together where they've taken a set medic who sort of, you know, does the health and safety supervisor kind of role to where they do the, the logistics, the medical stuff. They deal with the temperature taking, the PPE, kind of training the crew on that. And then a health and safety manager, which comes from the AD world. Um, So say, you know, you've got a 70 person crew, you've got your medic health and safety supervisor, and then you have your sort of AD style health and safety manager, who's going to be the person that leads your COVID monitor team of about four, four people. I come from the AD world, so it makes sense to me. And that, you know, if you're a first AD, you've got a key second, a second, second, and then you've got some PAs that have specific duties. You can kind of map that out in the same way you would the AD department in the COVID department. You know, you have the the COVID monitor that's by the working trucks and the check-in. You have the COVID monitor that's um, and the entrance from, you know, one zone to another zone. Like if you're going from a red zone to a yellow zone, you want to make sure that anybody crossing that is cleared to cross that, has the proper PPE. And then, you know, you have your, your floating monitor that just makes sure people's masks don't, you know, go down to their chin. If they need to have eye protection on that, it's not on top of their head. You know, just it's just little things to to ensure the most safety as possible so i think scaling you know it really depends on the amount of crew and then you know your budget of course so let's go back to this netflix feature really quick can you just talk about the scale of this project and like how many weeks you prepped what was the crew size like just all that stuff and then kind of go into like what your precautions had to be on the COVID side to manage that many people for sure. You know, about 200 plus crew members, it's, it's got a $90 million budget. So they really didn't spare any expense when it comes to the, the COVID safety. And I know that 
you know, executives have been having meetings for, you know, I think 10 weeks prior to, or to, to prep even having started for this. And, you know, they had two, two days left of physical production before the lockdown started. And then they stretched that out to four just for safety purposes. I know one of the things that people are looking at is to cutting the shooting hours down, you know, from 12 hours to 10 hours because people's health, you know, they, they don't want us working as long of hours. Essentially, the way that this worked out is they, they tested people uh, the Wednesday before the Monday that they would come into work. When people would go in to test, they would be trained by an infectious disease person on how to properly don and dop the PPE. You would get a week's worth of PPE in a bag that they would give you. They would explain to you the difference between a surgical mask, between a KN95 mask, between a a cloth mask, um, you got a thermometer, you got hand sanitizer and, and safety glasses in your, in your bag. And just sort of an explanation describing, you know, why and when you would use each of those in what zones you would, you would use them as well. Um, we got a small training on disinfecting, you know, uh, how you would do that, what different products you would use and how long you would have to leave it on the surface and what's the, you know, the best way to disinfect the surface. Another small training that we had on the same testing day was just a quick run through of uh, what the zoning plans were. They brought us into a stage and created examples of what, you know, what a green zone would be, what a yellow zone would be, what a red zone would be, what it would look like on the work day, what the flow would be, and you know, what their ideas were. In regards to that, after the testing day, we did a full, about an hour and a half training. They brought us through, you know, a full presentation, very similar to the, um, the COVID compliance officer training. So they brought us through, you know, what it would look like on set, what their plan was, um, you know, what the different PPE expectations were for the different zones and what would happen if you were feeling symptoms, you know, how it would look. When people tested uh, negative, they were cleared to go to work. And sort of the process looked like when you got to work, we would get a, a daily questionnaire that we needed to fill out that was digital. It was on our phones. So you would answer these three questions and then it would come back to you uh, either red if you were not clear to work or green if you were clear to work. You would show that to the person at the check-in. That person would you know, check your name off a list. I think the list was generated from the negative test results that were received from the Wednesday before. So you check in um, and then you get your temperature taken. You kind of move to the next person, get your temperature taken. You'd get a wristband for the day that would denote that you were allowed onto the set and the working area. And then before you went into the working area, there would be a person there to make sure that you had on the, the proper PPE to get into that working area. So the screening was just a questionnaire that they would be sent to your phone and then you would just have to answer those questions and sign digitally. So, so someone's not asking you directly like, oh, uh, all the, the screening questions. No, it was just, it was just through the app. I mean, it was basically, you know, do you, have you had contact with anybody who has tested positive for, for COVID? Um, are you, are you around anybody? Do you have a temperature? And then there was a list of, list of symptoms. Like, are you feeling any of these symptoms? And if so, you would check them off. And is this app available to anybody or is this like a proprietary app? You know, it was, I think the, the company that they used was WorkCares. And so I think that they had it tailored specific to them. And I think that productions can do that for themselves oh, cool. as well. Um, nice. So, and it was, it was pretty simple. And I think the, the temperature taking nurses were sourced through that as well. Now, if anybody did get a temperature that was higher than 103.4, our, our, yeah, our, our COVID, um, 
our COVID department had a two room trailer. Um, one, of the, one of the rooms was for, uh, for our department. And then the other room was a sterilized air conditioned room that if someone, their temperature was higher, we would put them in that room for 15 minutes, give them a cool down period. Um, you know, nobody else went in there, nobody else touched anything in there. And then we would take them out and take their temperature again. If their temperature went down, then they were cleared to work. Down from 103? I mean, that's... I mean, you may not have COVID, but you're definitely something that's wrong. It's just, it's not like anxiety that raises it. I think it's 100.3. Sorry. I oh, mis- okay. I, I, I was spoke. Like, you, are, you may be <laughs> yeah. hallucinating at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I misspoke. It's, it's 100.3, not Okay, got it. That makes way more yeah. sense. Right. Yeah, right. sorry. I totally misspoke. Yeah. <laughs> 100.4 is the moment, is the temperature that makes you. Yes. Yeah not pass 100.4 is is not passing 100.3 is is like the danger zone yeah yeah in in the compliance course uh one of the people giving the course or teaching the course talked about how he was on set once in nevada and then he did not pass his first one because he was like running drive driving late like stressed out whatever just drink a bunch of coffee and then like he sat away from you know the group group for 10 minutes and then retested and then he passed so it's good to hear that you guys are, have a, like a really great plan for implementing that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you want to you want to give the people the people the opportunity to work um, and in the safest way possible. So, um, you know, and it's it's difficult uh, in terms of asymptomatic people as well because what if somebody doesn't have a temperature or any of the symptoms but they are positive? So the the general consensus on set is that you treat everybody as if they have it. That's just the way that that people act, and it's it's really difficult because. You know, people being in this industry for 30 years, you know, the, the show had been shooting for uh, several months prior. So, you know, when you bring people back after a lockdown period, after having worked together for a few months, everybody wants to hug, everybody wants to high five and say hello. So, you know, you really have to, um, you know, be around and remind people that like, hey, there's a global pandemic happening, guys. Like everybody loves each other, but like you got to stay six feet apart. Yeah, do that foot handshake. I'm curious about liability for people like yourself. I mean, you're brought on to do a job and you're in charge of safety, but it's also like it, it can't be put on you if someone gets sick. So I'm just curious how that that system works. Like are essentially productions signing agreements that say like they free you of liability, even though your job is to make sure that these regulations are overseen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just feels like there's a lot put on a lot of pressure put on this compliance officer. Right. Um, I mean, well, we had, you know, 20 people in our department that were working on the ground. And then above us, you know, there's another set of people that are working with executives there. So I mean, I really can't speak to the specifics of liability. um, But I know that we were not asked to sign any waivers releasing uh, the production of liability if we were to get sick. And I think that I think the unions and the guilds are still working out agreements in terms of what would happen if somebody were to get sick. I mean, this was a short production, you know, it was only four days of shooting and a few weeks of prep and about a week and a half of strike. It's going to look vastly different on a six month show that starts. I've heard that there's a show in Atlanta that has two crews right now, one crew on standby and one crew that's going to be for shooting. Not everybody has the budget for stuff like that. So (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, what do you do if somebody gets sick and, you know, half of a department goes down in the middle of a day, you know, you really have to kind of think of contingency plans for that. I think really the idea of treating it as if everybody has it is is the safest way to go, just because 
you know, it's, we don't know all that much about this or the long-term effects of it yet. And people do want to get back to work, but we have to do it, you know, in the safest way possible. So can you talk about like, did, did you have anybody whose test came up positive in the testing process? And in that case, like, tell us what happened if there was anybody who tested positive. I mean, we, we don't know specifically who it was or anything like that because of, because of privacy laws. But um, I did hear that before people started to work, they did, uh, there was a couple of positive tests and they just weren't able to show up for work on that Monday. So they got paid for their testing day, but then they don't get paid for the actual work they were going to do. You know, I'm not, I can't speak to that because I'm not oh, sure, but I do right. know that, um, you know, when we did go in for the testing and the training day, it was on a Wednesday. So we got paid for the testing and the training day. And then they considered Thursday and Friday as isolation days, self-quarantine days. So we did get paid for those oh. two days as well. And what, wow. what the expectation is for this, it, it was a short shoot, is that you would self-quarantine during the time of the shoot, you know, only yeah. go out if you needed to, um, you know, essentially be as safe as possible. Like, don't go out and party if that's what you do. Or like, don't right. go to the beach with 20 people and, you know, dance in a circle. It's like, <laughs> you know, be smart about it because, uh, you know, a production doesn't have control over what people do when, when they're at home. And there was... There was a lot of talk of productions taking over hotels and quarantining entire crews um, for the duration of a shoot. And that's, you know, that's a lot to ask people, you know, say you live five minutes away from the hotel that you're quarantining. I mean, how likely is it that a crew member is not going to go home, but stay in the hotel? So it's, right. you know, it's, it's still being, being worked on and how best to go forward in this. I would stay in the hotel. Hotels are the best. It is like a vacation within a vacation. I was curious about what, your process was daily on set as one of the monitors like like were people like trying to hug each other and then you actually had to stop them or like did most people like know that oh no we just can wave were you going around like you know making sure people were staying six feet apart or disinfecting like what was your your daily routine as an officer you know people forget it's not like anybody was uh specifically trying to shirk the rules. I mean, you know, you have your, your standard troublemaking departments on set. I'm not going to say anything, but we all know. <laughs> so the way that what I would do, I'll speak to what I did. And, you know, each of the monitors kind of had their specific region and area. Um, but I'll speak in a generalized term. So it was on location and we, uh, from crew parking to the set, we, it was walkable. So we didn't have to deal with van rides, which is a whole other issue. And what we did was we created a choke point to the entryway for that set. So people had to go through this one area to, to enter it. And then what, you know, we defined it as uh, once you enter the set it's it's a particular zone it's a yellow zone so you have to have the specific ppe on for us if uh if you're in a yellow zone you had to have a surgical mask on and eye protection so it's either um you know clear glasses or a face shield and you know people prefer the glasses to the face shield but if you don't have the glasses you get a face shield so i set up a little desk at that checkpoint so that anybody coming through i was able to tell them hey make sure you've got your ppe make sure you've got this you know, you've, you've been, you've been checked in, you've got your wristband, you've got your temperature taken and that had happened at a crew parking. So make sure everybody had gone through that because we had crew members that would just show up and go right, try to go right to set and not having check in. So it was sort of like, 
you know, we make sure everybody checked in, got their temperature taken, got the wristband, got through and got their PPE. And now I had, you know, KN95 masks, surgical masks, face shields ready in case anybody didn't have what they needed to get into the work area. So doing that for me, you know, and every single crew member on the way to the set passed by me is a way for me to, you know, remind them that, hey, you're going into a zone where you need to have all this stuff on. It's me to visually see them so that when I see them, they know that I saw them and they have the PPE. So if I see them on set and it's around their chin or whatever, you know, they know what that means if I'm walking towards them. So once we got everybody through, um, you know, they started setting up, started started to shoot. When it turns into a red zone, uh, you have to have a KN95 mask on and a face shield. There's no, no ifs, ands, mm. or buts about that. Um, even if you have safety glasses, you have to have a face shield on as well. Wow. People that were dealing with, with, uh, with the talent, um, they had to have either the gowns on that were disposable and, and gloves if they were touching the talent. Wow. Because talent would, would not have any PPE on, obviously, when they're on set, like shooting. So that's why you have to have that extra level, right, in the red zones. So what, uh, what we did was for talent, they had masks that they would wear up until they got to set. When talent was traveling anywhere they were was a red zone. You know, we made sure to keep it clear from them. And then we had, you know, Tupperware containers to keep their PPE in that nobody touched, nobody used, nobody reached in except for them. So it was sort mm. of like a... Like a hyperbaric chamber for them wow, of sorts cool. um, and then once we were we were on set we we used uh the electric department's astera tubes that we were able to set up kind of around the area so when it was a yellow zone we could flick the color yellow when it was a red zone <laughs> yeah we would flick it red that's amazing so, yeah it was super useful i found that the visual representations of the zones are really really helpful for folks because like Every, generally, everybody wants to get back to work and follow the rules. It's not easy to wear a KN95 mask for 10 hours. I, I know that. I don't want to do it. But if it allows me to get back to work safely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suck it up and do it because it's what it was. Yeah. So, you know, there's, I walked around. I reminded folks to, to stay socially distanced because it's human nature. You know, we all have these tractor beams that kind of draw us into one another when we're talking. And, you know, so just remind folks to, to stay socially distanced. I came in armed with hand sanitizer and would walk around and sanitize people's hands. We had hand sanitizers set up uh, all around the electronic ones. You just stick your hand under. We had hand washing stations brought in and moved around for the locations. Um, but me going through and, 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 you know, offering to sanitize people's hands for them, uh, you know, was also a way to check the PPE, check to see who was close together, check, you know, just to make sure that everybody was doing, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. And generally, everybody, everybody was cool about it. it. wasn't too difficult, didn't give us a hard time. Sometimes people would forget, but, you know, generally people were good about it. The, the interesting thing is catering. You know, when uh, when you have lunch, you got to take your mask off to eat. And then how is it going to be now? So the catering folks had plastic sheets over over all of their stations. And what you would walk up, you would order and everything was individually boxed and wrapped and they would kind of slide it under the plastic sheet. And you would go kind of down the line. Um, wow. Even even the beverages were served to you and poured individually. Same thing for craft service. Everything is single serving, handed to you. They would wheel coolers around, and then the craft service person actually had to hand you the drink right. that you took. Coolers are touch points. You can't have people reaching into coolers. I was on a shoot yesterday where the uh, producer was like, oh, here's a cooler, grab a drink. And I was like, uh, let's have one person take the drinks out of the cooler, put it on the table next to the you know individual wrapped lunches. 
it's just better, you know. There's only five of us, but still, I'm just like, you know, let's limit it here, people. Well, I was curious. Um, I know this is very difficult answer, so I'm sorry, John, for tasking you with this. But if you have a low budget indie production, not a Netflix, you know, big big ninety million dollar project, and you're trying to budget time and you're trying to figure out how many hours a day would you know to a compliance officer and a supervisor, that kind of setup you described earlier would cost us in time. Is there any kind of um, recommendation you could give? Is it an hour that people are going through check-in procedure and then leaving? Is it two hours? What What would you recommend? Check-in was was pretty fluid for us. It doesn't it doesn't take too long as long as people get in the habit of having the questionnaire done and ready when they get there. And then, you know, it's just a quick temperature take and people are good to go. Giving people, you know, a weekly set of PPE or enough for the amount of days that they're working beforehand is great. It kind of, it, it, it creates less stopping points on the way. Um, in terms of having your compliance officer there and the hours that they would work, they've got to be there before locations and got to be there till the very end. So it's almost as if depending on how many hours you shoot, you may need, you know, if, even if you have a smaller shoot, two people so that you can split that because it's, it's a long time. I mean, we, we got there two and a half hours before crew started arriving and then we were there till the last of the working trucks was, was buttoned up. But in terms of the impact, that's actually, that wasn't my question, but it's like a better question that you answered. <laughs> but in terms of like the impact on the duration of a shoot, do you think it's, is there a way to speculate on how much it slows the production down by? The general talk that I'm hearing around is that people want to shorten the days. And what that's going to do is expand the length of the shooting schedule now, you know, with shorter days in, in the spirit of thinking about people's health, you know, not shooting 12, 14 hours, but try, you know, trying our best to make it, I can't even say eight, cause that sounds ridiculous, but like, you know, <laughs> 10 to 10 to 12 hours. Um, right. So you know, it's in, in the spirit of attempting to do that, it's going to lengthen our, our shooting schedules, I feel like. But I think what we are going to see as well is uh, there's going to be much more lot work, much more stage work, much more remote location work, because shooting anything in any public space right now is going to be near impossible to regulate. Um, right. So I think I think some of the writing is going to be adjusted and some of the shots will be adjusted, you know, as such to make things more easily containable. I think I think the more the more contained you can make a location or uh, a day of the shoot, the faster it'll go. And from what I see, the, the more that is put into pre-production and planning, uh, especially with all these COVID protocols, the more we can look at and have a good plan there, the more fluid things will go on the day. And I think that'll shorten, shorten the time a lot. Cause once, you know, once we got going, even, even day one, you know, an hour and a half into it, things were moving along just, just like it was kind of a normal day, but you know, turning around and keeping the different uh, pod zones of the crew separate when we were doing that, it slowed things down a little bit, but it wasn't a drastic, as drastic of a difference as one might think. If people want to know more about this, like what should, should they be doing? Should we all be taking this COVID-19 uh, compliance officer's test that I took? Like, is there other things, other resources people can go and look out for? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the COVID compliance officer class is great. It's great information. I don't think that a 12-year-old could take it, and I don't think it would 
you know, delineate them as now qualified compliance officer. I think there's a lot more that goes to it. Right, um, right. But I think in terms of educating ourselves, anything that's, that's legitimate that people can get their hands on would be helpful. I know that the, the WHO has, has about an hour long course that just came out uh, about a week ago that has some new information. I know that the Johns Hopkins contact tracing course, uh, there's now a part two to that, uh, which kind of builds on top of it. I think that that's really, really good information to have. I know that people who are hiring compliance officers are looking at, you know, people who have taken the Johns Hopkins course, the ATS course, and then the WHO course is something that uh, I know IA and SAG is, is looking at have people having and taken. And a lot of the people who are going to be in charge of these COVID departments, I'm finding, are military ex-military personnel with medical experience i know that a lot of like disney is is hiring a lot of people in that in that realm i know warner brothers is looking for folks uh and that and that's sort of the base that they're looking at because they've got to deal with you know producers talent directors and people have to come you know with with a hard line about the safety because it's really you know, it's someone's health that we're dealing with. And, you know, we don't know everything about this. So we have to be, you know, as safe as possible, but, you know, get back to work at the same time. Awesome. John, thank you so much for coming yeah, and talking to us today. This has been amazing. Where can people go to find more about you if they want to, you know, learn about your work and, you know, maybe even hire you as a compliance officer? My IMDB is just uh, imdb.me slash John Snyder, J-O-N-S-N-Y-D-E-R. And then uh, my Instagram is John Snyder underscore, John underscore Snyder SF. That's pretty much it. I mean, I'm around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys for having me. I think it's really important for for people to know what it's going to look like on set and what to expect. And then for everybody to have as much information as they can to be as safe as possible. Because, well, you know, we all love what we do and we want to get back to work. And I think... If we can do it safely, you know, let's let's charge forward. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing. Well, that was pretty amazing. I also really liked how John adapted the big budget plan for a low budget plan. But guess what, Ulrich? You've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. Ooh, what do we have this week, Liz? Yeah, we have like a super bizarre iTunes review. Remember last week when we were like, this guy just keeps putting angry faces on our Facebook post. Now we have someone on iTunes who just is sharing nonsense with us. But let's share it with everyone else. Four stars out of five by Mixed Visions. And the subject line is awesome from August 1st. And it says, this motion picture podcast gives me cologne cancer. So there's so many different ways that we could interpret this. Ulrich, I know, like, what were you thinking? Like, were you insulted? Were you flattered? Did you feel, like, really powerful, like, that we could give someone cologne cancer? Well, like a fool, when I read this to you, I said colon cancer because (laughs) that was what, like, my brain immediately, immediately went to. And then you were like, it actually says cologne cancer, Ulrich. And I was like, oh, yeah, that that is what it says. I don't know what it means. Yeah, maybe it's It's nonsense. It's middle of the night nonsense where someone's like drunk iTunes reviewing things. (laughs) And they're just like, what's a funny phrase? Cologne cancer. I'm not going to regret that in the morning. And I wonder, do they? Do they regret it? Maybe mixed 
mixed visions. I've, I've closed the window now. I've rejected them. So I don't even know who it was. But maybe they could get back in touch and tell us what they meant. Yeah, let us know. I guess I'm just going to say that maybe it thinks they're saying like, oh, well, filmmaking is harder than I thought it was. That's my reaction. But great information and really good podcast. Maybe that's that's sort of what I take from it. Yeah, I mean, like all press is good press to me, right? <laughs> right so it's like too. even if someone says that we give them cologne cancer, I'm like, oh, you listened. You're paying <laughs> yeah. attention to us. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Love it. Thank you for giving us like awesome and four stars. Everything else you say doesn't matter. That's all that matters. <laughs> well, if you want to be similar or very different from Mixed Visions, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. And you can leave a review uh, for the show on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. Actually, side note, I looked on Spotify and you're not allowed to, there's no place to review podcasts. There's no podcasts. nothing. There's no comments, no nothing. Wow. No, they don't have it for podcast specifically. So maybe in the future, people can leave Spotify reviews. We also have a Patreon page. Uh, so if you, you know, love the show or feel very passionately towards the show, you want to support us, please go over to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and give us whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, we're just appreciative for the support. And we have some cool swag to share with you, including some brand new enamel pins, which I will ship to you from <laughs> Las Feliz. Finally, make sure you head over to our Instagram page. Click on the link in our bio. And we are desperately looking for some YouTube subscribers to build our YouTube channel or just like our Instagram page. I mean, there's lots of ways that you could support us, all of which we will appreciate to know end but we are hoping to reach 100 subscribers by september and all it takes is just clicks of the mouse you know it doesn't cost anything it doesn't really even take that much time it's just literally clicking on a phone or on a computer that's all we're asking <laughs> and and thank you yes very much for anything that you give us every like touches my heart so thank you guys what about truth what about the reality what about the way the old ending tested in canoga park but liz What's up with the player this week? Well, it's different. So this, you know, instead of doing a bunch of little segments like we did the John Snyder interview, right? So a friend of mine who is like a hero of mine as well, her name is Katie McLean. She may know her from her like pretty expansive soap opera acting career, but she was also, she was Coach's niece in Cheers. So she won my heart that way. Anyway, she's a mentor in addition to being a filmmaker. She did a movie called Seeing is Believing. It's about women directors and she is as like a mentor at women in film she does all these things okay I just feel like I'm gonna give a laundry list and we're gonna go on forever but she's very impressive and I wanted to just focus on her this week rather than gather a bunch of different voices so we're gonna talk to Katie McLean about mentorship Hi, I'm Katie McLean, and I'm the director of Seeing is Believing Women Direct. And in five minutes, I'm going to download why you should be a mentor and care about the art of mentoring. All throughout my career, I have been mentoring other women, and I've learned some basic rules, which I'm going to share with you. What is mentoring? Mentoring is helping another woman or man one-to-one -one, teaching the apprenticeship mindset because you cannot be a master until you are a student and caring about their progress in their art and their career. Why should you mentor? Mentoring is an opportunity to pass on values and especially the value of integrity in the work. I feel like if more women mentored one another on a one-to-one -one basis, we would have a much better business, a much healthier business. And that's what I'm all about. Rule number one, be kind. You don't have to be weak, but be kind. 
if you can, as much as you can, whenever you can. You may be in a bad mood some days, but do your very best to be kind. You never know what somebody else has suffered that day. Rule number two, self-care is not negotiable. You have to give from overflow. If you're feeling sick, if you don't have it to give, you're not going to give as much and in the right way as you might if you had taken a bath that day, for example. Rule number three, develop structure. People really like structure. It isn't as controlling as some people might make it out to be. It's nice to know when to call, how long you can talk, and what the topic is going to be. That's super important. Rule number four, listen. Actively listen to what your mentee is saying about themselves. Do not impress upon them what you think their career should be. Listen to what they want and then respond accordingly. Rule number four, Speak to inspire. What stories you tell in your attitude is everything. The business will constantly be telling other women that they can't make it, that it's too hard, that the world is horrible, that there's no more career for them, that COVID is going to destroy everything. You've got to be that voice that says, make your work, find a way to make your work, make your work, make your art, find a way, find hope, find beauty, find a story, find a camera, shoot something, make your work, and then make some more work. Rule number five, guard against users. Unfortunately, there are some people who will want to suck all the great ideas out of your head and then kick you to the curb. Spot them early and say, no, thank you. (laughs) Move on. Okay, what being a mentor can do for you in your career is resonate to the rest of the community that you care about the industry. If you're in this industry fighting for it to be a better industry, the industry will notice. Teaching what you know lets people know that you know it. You can't pass on what you don't have. If you have something and you teach it, it lets people know that you have it. Mentoring is its own energy force. The universe likes it when you make things and mentoring is its own creation. So in helping someone else be a creative person, you are in the act of creating. And that is incredibly positive. It's a wonderful feeling. And for me, seeing somebody else grow and succeed, knowing that I helped them is a magical feeling. Most people do not like it when there is no exchange. Most people will say, can I help you in some way? And there will be some exchange that happens. And that can be a very rewarding moment when your mentee offers that. But you have to give without expectation and the universe will fill the gap. Maybe it might not come directly from that mentee, but maybe they will recommend somebody or something to you. There's always an exchange. It's a spiritual law. Other reasons why mentoring is so great, you show others the world is good, that people are good, and the possibilities are endless. You prove that you can't be stopped by anybody but yourself, and you become an example of the goodness and resilience of the human spirit. I mean, what sucks about that? Nothing. So in the next year, I mean, for myself, just speaking as a creative person, all I care about is that I am creating, that I am making work, that I am writing, that I am filming, that I am editing, that I am putting that work out there, because that's healthy. If I'm telling stories that I love and uh, that give me joy, then I'm winning. And, um, and that's a great thing. I, I just don't want anything to stop me creatively or from making the work that I feel called to make. And that's my goal. And I want to help other people make their work too, because it's exciting. It's exciting to see new work in the world. It's beauty and, and, and it's important. So I hope you all help one another make the work and get that work out there and uh, let it be seen and shine. 
I'm Katie McLean, and you can watch Seeing is Believing Women Direct on Seed and Spark right now. So just go do it, like do yourself a favor, and just go watch it. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much, Liz Manischel, for having me on Making Movies is Hard. And this week, we have a returning guest for you who uh, listens to the podcast back in episode 100 and something. I can't remember the episode number for Reed, but uh, we have Reed Schisterman back on the show. Welcome, Reed. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, man. Just a little background. So if you don't remember or you didn't listen to the first episode, I met Reed at AFM back was it 2017, Reed, when we met? Was that the year? 20, that sounds right. I don't want to put money on that, but that sounds right. Yeah. I think that's right. I think it's 20, I keep on thinking it's 2018, but I think it actually is 2017. So we met as two hopeful filmmakers trying to get our uh, pitches read and bought and sold and all those things. It was really interesting because like, you know, do you hear about what Reed was working on? I think you'd already made your short film. The Goblin Queen. Yep. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome, by the way, If those for those who haven't seen it. I think it's out online now. And Reed was pitching this big-budget movie. I was working on the alternate, and, uh, you know, it was really interesting to, like, hear our two stories and compare them. And then we had Reed on to talk about his life as a, a reader, a professional reader for Hollywood screenplays and such. And then, gosh, when did you email me? Was it, like, in July or june or august when you were asking for dp recommendations do you remember i think it was about august somewhere in late, late summer i emailed you looking for some dp recs i hadn't heard from him probably since he'd been on the episode and you know last time we talked about his making a movie he was trying to raise like over a million dollars to make his first feature and so then i think in the email he was like i'm i need dp recommendations i don't know if you said i took your advice but you're like i've decided to make like a, a lower budget movie for under half a million and we're just going to we're doing that. So that's happening like this fall. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and I think I was in the middle of trying to figure out if I was able to make the alternate this fall or not. And so to hear that you had it figured out. Yeah, I think we were about a month ahead of you pulling the trigger on it because I sent you that email and then you were super busy and I got one back like, oh, wait, we're going. Sorry. Basically, in the midst of like, OK, we have this much money are we going to be able to do it? Are we going to just, just throw in and like do a crowdfunding campaign? What is the solution here? Like, how are we going to make this movie? And, uh, and like, I think we had like basically fully committed like right around the time that I got the email from you. So I didn't really have a much, much time to respond. And I think by the time I responded, you'd already found a DP. Yeah, but anyway, so that's a long way of introing that we have a return guest who has just shot their first feature film, Bloodborne, in what, November? Was that when you guys shot? Yep, November. Wow, amazing. It's really fun, too, because like we were so close. Like We originally wanted to shoot in November, and then mm -hmm. we had to push to December. There would have been a reality where we would have both yeah. <laughs> been making our movies at the same time. Still very close, which I just, I, I kept thinking about that coffee we had at AFM and how we were both talking about it. I'm like, oh yeah, we really want to make this happen. And then two, three years later, however math works, just to get there at the same time was very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And I, and I wonder if that's like, we have two examples here of, of two filmmakers in the exact same position. Like we went to AFM trying to sell a movie or get a movie made, you know, not a completed movie, but like a movie from a script. 
and uh three just over three years later we both make our first feature films um that's kind of incredible <laughs> i wonder how much overlap there is between you and i versus what i thought was possible when we were at afm versus the reality that i ran into over the next 12 months or so right right which was oh you know this is a good short people like it you know people with money have said they'll think about it and then going in and then they're like nah not really I changed my mind. And then the process of, okay, well, if that's not going to work, how am I going to get my movie made? Which is certainly what I've been doing for the last two years before we started production. So the movie that you were trying to make at AFM, was it a feature version of yes. The Goblin Queen? Was yeah, that was the a, idea? It was a feature version of Goblin Queen. We were looking at budgets and like starting at $3 million, which was sort of the low end of what's really doable for that kind of movie. Yeah, that's a lot. It's not... You know, there have been first-time directors who have gotten made shorts and made movie, then made movies at that level. It's not unheard of, but it makes the news when it happens because of how unusual it is. And the feedback I was getting was, we love you, the script, we'll buy it, but if you want to direct it, you have to do something else first. So that was then the process for me was, do I try and... I, I spent some time after pounding studios, studio doors, talking to private investors. I had some meetings with, I had one meeting with a guy who referred to $150,000 as beer money, <laughs> but he wouldn't give me $3 million for my movie. But in the process of all of that, I was able to make contacts with people who, while they wouldn't give me $3 million, might invest smaller amounts that if I, you know, combine them together, I can make the kind of feature that I wanted. I'm not like... Liz, who stepped away for a flat tire situation right now. Some other guests you guys have had on are very much in the like super, super low budget end, which I respect the hell out of because of how hard it is and how terrifying it is to have to do stuff on single shoestring. And not like we had a ton more shoestrings on this budget, but coming at it as a writer and not a technical guy, I needed a little more. I didn't have the connections for behind the camera stuff. So we just needed a little more for me to have the support that I needed. So I went around, I put together this script, which is a slightly different story that I could get into if you want. But we took the well, script. Well, I want to pump yeah. the brakes a little bit before we get to Bloodborne, because I think this 12 months of you trying to sell the Goblin Queen feature is, is very interesting. And I think really important for people to hear, especially myself. I've heard people say things like this so many times, like I've tried to get the movie made, nothing worked, I have to blah, 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 figure something out. So I kind of want to hear more in detail about like, you, you talked about meeting with people who said they would buy the script from you. Like what kind of companies were these that were like, you know, interested in that? There was never a very serious offer about buying the script. There was nobody ever like sent me like, we'll pay you 50 to $100,000 or whatever to buy and develop this script that you've written. But we had a bunch of meetings where financiers were very serious about, we really like this script. This is it's weird, but it's we think we can market it. We like how low budget it is. But we would want to change it up some and do this and do that. And by the time we did all that, just the budget would be the kind of thing where you need a track record in order to direct it. And that movie was very much a... It was very much a passion project in a way. This other movie that I ended up making, I, I, which I love and I'm very passionate about, but it isn't, you know, the epic, the low budget epic fantasy that I've been dreaming about since I was six years old. I think that's a very normal thing, though. And then I guess the, the other question I want to ask is like, so at what point did you decide... I can't make this movie right now. I have to put it on the shelf. I have to figure something else out. What was that breaking point for you? It was probably around 
late 2018 and I was meeting with my producer Cindy Rice who she's done a lot of stuff I think she was just coming off she produced the movie Charlie Says that Doctor Who played Charles Manson that came out last year she's a friend of mine she produced the short years ago and she's been really trying to help me get something made and we were talking and we sort of realized that this wasn't going anywhere and if we wanted to do something that we had these resources in order to make a much lower budget movie but i needed to write a script that was a producible on a lower budget which was a huge struggle for me and b was something that i cared about and would still be marketable when made on a very low budget how do you begin probably three months of meetings with cindy where we just we would just sit down and be like okay so what kind of movies are low budget and we would like movies where they're all trapped in a house and there's something outside movies where they're trapped in a it was a lot of like what kind of contained stories work which for me like my movie loves are you know big epic blockbusters lord of the rings and star wars and <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course yeah of we, course we all love those right <laughs> exactly so it was a pro probably a four-month process just learning how to conceptualize stories that wouldn't cost 10 million dollars based on the concept alone that was a harder struggle than i realized we narrowed down on a couple things. I knocked out a couple of outlines and treatments, and we went through a few, but none of them really clicked, and I was having trouble really caring about them on a level where I felt like it was worth the effort that, you know, making a movie requires. So we finally, we were talking about horror, which is not my first love. I, I, I like horror. I respect it, but I'm a baby, so I don't go out of my way to see it very much. But we were talking about, so making horror, what really scares you right now? Because that's what you can write about. And my wife and I were talking about having a kid, and that's terrifying. So I wrote this movie about everything I was scared of about having a kid. And it suddenly, it came alive in a way that none of the other scripts did because I, you know, they write what you know is such a cliche. It turns out that it works. I think I wrote that script faster than any script I've ever written. Actually, we're recording this the day or two days after the Super Bowl. It was at a Super Bowl party in 2019. After the party, me and my producer and a couple of our friends were hanging out and just turned into a conversation of like, okay, come on, dude, you've been talking about this for a while. If you're going to do it, now's the time. It's been four years. It's been a year of kicking around low budget stuff. And so I, I promised the five people in this conversation, I will either have a script for you at the end of June, or I'll pay each of you $100, which was not money I had. So that was some really great pressure to, <laughs> to get that script written. So I finished the script in April, actually, because it came out so fast. And then it was just a question of putting the money together. That's actually funny because I had a very similar situation with the first draft of the alternate. I was trying to write a script for probably two years. You know, it was going to be originally like the feature version of my first short film, Strange Thing. That was like what I was working on. And then I was getting to this point where I was like far enough along. I had written a bunch of it. But like, it just wasn't getting there. So my friend was like, do you want to do this thing like stakes, bring you some stakes to your, to your writing. And he, he called it stakes for stakes. So basically <laughs> like the deal was I would buy him a steak dinner at the end of this month time. And I would finish the script within that month. So like, like March 31st had to have the script done and I would buy him a steak dinner as a thank you for like putting me on this timeline. If I didn't finish the script on time, I'd either have to give him $500, which I don't have, 
or so he's an ultra marathon runner and he can run a marathon any time of the day or I'd have to run a marathon with him on that day oh, and, God. And, and then buy him a steak dinner afterwards. Oh, God, that's uh, yeah, that's some pressure. <laughs> so I was pretty motivated. I knew I didn't have the money to pay him 500 bucks. So I was like, well, it's either marathon and killing myself or finishing the script. And it was a thing where I went through the same kind of thing that you would went through with the Goblet Queen, but like in a much shorter time, like I'd been writing this movie and basically I got like 45 pages into it. And then I realized there's no way I can make this movie for my first movie. This is impossible. I'm writing spaceships and alien creatures and fight sequences and big visual effects sequences and chase sequences. Like, who the hell do I think I am? Like, this is not going to happen, you know? And uh, and I had studied Attack the Block. That's a movie I really like. Uh-huh. And, oh, uh, I love that. Yeah, that's a fantastic film. And I felt like that was sort of the range I was thinking that this could be in. And I was like, well, what's the budget on Attack the Block? And it was like $11 million or $12 million or something. I had the exact same experience with the exact same movie. I kept talking oh, really? about Attack the Block. And oh, look, like that was cheap. That was low budget. We can do that. And then I went and looked at the budget and had the exact same. That's fantastic that's wonderful. yeah it's like a wake-up call like oh even a low-budget action movie is yep. still expensive yeah once you have anybody running because if you're sh- if they're running and they you can't run across a 10-foot room which is a lot easier to light and have it be exciting <laughs> it's just right. running immediately doubles your budget minimum i think well, yeah, because then you have to have all the locations that go into the running. Liz is back. I'm back. Um, did we mention that my fl- tire got a flat? <laughs> I, think, I was outside uh, fixing it for the past 20 minutes. Uh, I don't know. I think we might have. I can't remember. I mean, it's not that important, but that's where I was. Kids at home. Liz is back with us now. Yeah, what did I miss? <laughs> like everything. I think I missed everything. Well, no, we, we haven't even actually gotten to Bloodborne yet because oh, we good. were talking about... Um, so how we met at AFM and Reed was pitching another movie uh, at AFM, the feature version of his short, The Goblin Queen. And uh, it was like a $3 million minimum budget. The short version of the story is he spent a year trying to get that movie made and had no luck. And then, you know, basically people telling him as a first time director, you have to do something lower budget. Like we could probably sell the script and get another director on board and get it made. But you can't make this movie at your stage. So then he was telling a story at the Super Bowl last year, 2019. He basically got challenged by his friends to write a movie by June or he was going to pay them all a certain amount of money, you know, because he's been like talking the talk for so long. And then he wrote the script in April and it was done in April. And then that's when they started. uh, (laughs) Yeah. And then that's when they started raising the money for uh, Bloodborne. Bloodborne. Bloodborne, Yeah. That's so badass. Reed. Good job. It was one of those things in life where you, where when you've been talking about something for a long time, it was really nice to finally pull it off and like, oh yeah, no, I can do what I've been saying I can do for months or years or decades or whatever. That's like the human angle of it. But the business angle of it is that you are yet another person who's told me that AFM was not very productive for them. Oh, uh, 100%. It was not productive. Hey, we met each other, Reed, at AFM. Come on, man. The the thing for me that was a learning experience at AFM was realizing how far away I actually was. I'd spent so long working to, you know, get where I thought I would be in the industry. And, you know, I'd been out in L.A. for 10 years, I think, at that point, and just realized, oh, I'm not there yet. 
So that was valuable. It wasn't worth how much I paid for the pass, but. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever there yet. This is something that we talk about a lot, but we, I think all of us all feel we're not there. We're years from where we want to be. And it's because you're never there until you die. That's what I've decided. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Definitely. Well, really quickly, I was telling the story about, you know, I had a similar situation with my friend, like offering him a certain amount of money if I didn't write my future script by a certain date. And basically what happened was I was writing a bigger budget movie, realized it was not going to happen with like a within a week of my deadline. I switched concepts to the alternate and then I turned that out in about a week. And so that was like where the movie that I just made came from, like this first draft. And then, of course, you know, spent five years, um, you know, rewriting it, rewriting it, rewriting it. And then, you know, yeah, so that was probably back in 2015, like two years before we met. You know, So I'd already been working on the alternate for so long by the time I went to AFM. And still it was like kind of the middle of the journey, you know, maybe the beginning. Because I met my producer right after that and he signed on to the movie right after AFM. So that was kind of when it really started was once he was involved. Uh, anyways, back to Reed. So it's April and you've written Bloodborne and then you're like, okay, I have to raise the money for this movie. Talk to us about how that happened. Like I'd said, uh, when I was trying to make Goblin Queen, I met with, you know, a lot of people with money, mostly non-film money. I do some other work. I work and do some real estate work in Costa Rica. Uh, so through that and through some other family connections, you know, I know some people that have a decent amount of money and I've done work for some of them or I'm related to them. So one way or another, I've, they like me. So I was able to, when I was pitching Goblin Queen, you know, give them this pitch and get honest feedback. Like, no, we won't give you $3 million, but here's what we think and what you did well and what you didn't do. And that was a really valuable experience. But they all also said, you know, if you have something smaller or something lower or something a little safer than a low budget fantasy movie, I guess, you know, come back to us and talk to us. So once this was coming together, I started sending emails like, hey, what's up? I haven't talked to you for a couple months, but this is what's going on and I might be looking for some money. Can I, you know, just talk to you about it? And just was able to raise money fairly casually like that. And I think that my experience doing that was easier than it would be for a lot of people because I had those connections and I had already asked them for money once and gotten fairly positive responses. So I think that was a little unusual. And this is something that makes a lot of people nervous, right? Asking people for money. And then obviously, yes, you had experience in the first round asking people for Goblin Queen. But I guess what I'm curious about is like, what gave you the strength? <laughs> what gave you the confidence to ask for it in the first place? I don't know how much it was real confidence versus how much it was I needed to get this movie made if I wanted to be on the track that I want to be on. You were getting your tire fixed when I told the story, the concept of the movie. My wife and I, we were talking about having a kid, so I was very scared of that. So when I had to write, that's what I wrote about, the fear of having a kid, which was terrifying. And so that on a personal level, my wife and I decided, okay, we're going to start trying. So I was basically in a position where if I don't get this money raised in the next four months or so, then I'm not going to be able to make this movie for two years. Right, because everyone decides that two years is this arbitrary date where you're going to be locked up in the house. I, Sorry, I have a one-year-old, so I know this exact experience. And I specifically made my second feature before... We got pregnant on my second feature. 
So I totally understand. It was some level of confidence and some level of deadlines and fear that I turned into the bluster of confidence. And I've always been good at appearing confident. And like, I know what I'm talking about, even when I don't, I think that's a very important skill for anybody to have. But certainly if you're pitching stuff as somebody who doesn't have a ton of experience, you want to sound like you know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I also think that like, you know, spending that time laying that groundwork was really important. Like if you hadn't spent a year trying to get Goblin Queen, the feature made, and you hadn't gone to AFM and you hadn't made a short film, I feel like all those things lead up to like you being, you know, confident enough to ask your connections for money and you know, to believe in yourself to even make this movie. I, th I think the, all those experiences kind of pile up together, you know? Um, so... A hundred percent. I mean, that's why I feel like, you know, going to AFM, sure, like, it didn't directly lead to us making our movies in any way, but it definitely shaped us as filmmakers and gave us more experience by, by going through that. Oh, a hundred percent. Just going there and seeing all these films that many of them were absolutely terrible and absolutely cheap, but just seeing like, oh, you can do this and it might not be great, but like so many people do it. You're not there yet, but yeah, that was, it was motivating and scary, but it certainly helped get me to, oh, I need, I, this is how this is actually going to happen if it's actually going to happen. I'm just really excited that this is an episode about babies because this is all I want to talk about all the time. And now there's like a reason to talk about it on a recording. So it sounds like the movie's from the male perspective, though, even though physically pregnancy is the most terrifying thing for many women to imagine yes. before it happens. Yes. Um, can you, t did you already talk about that? Can you talk a little bit about that? It's definitely from the male perspective about the fear of becoming a father for me. The characters in the story, I don't know if we even gave the 30 second pitch. The The movie is, it's called Bloodborne. It's about a couple, they're struggling with infertility. So they hire a witch doctor to help them get pregnant. And you know, as happens in movies, the baby's got a little something extra going on. It was a very visceral writing experience, like really just everything I'm terrified of happening through pregnancy and most of the, that stuff happening to my wife. And so the not having the control over what happens, the pain and the changes and the discomfort that she's going to go through. Something that was important to me was that it didn't come off as like some male paranoid fantasy about pregnancy. Or like fear of commitment or something like that. And to be fair, there's some of that in there because there's some of that in me, but that wasn't really... I really didn't want to make that version of that movie. It would It would have been dishonest to not include any of that, but... I didn't want to make that version. So most of the people who were reading it when we were going through drafts and stuff were women. And many of them were women who have had kids. Uh, we had some people who struggled with infertility read it. I did a lot of research and reading about that stuff and about, and then just about the physical stuff that happens during pregnancy, which is a horror movie completely without any supernatural stuff added. That no one talks about. No one talks about these things. No one at all. And and certainly we, you know, for the movie, we amped it up a little bit. You know, it, it is something, it's a horror movie, so we certainly went big on some of the stuff. But I really hope that we focused on the emotional journey that the characters go through and not just like, ooh, icky, like it's moving. There's a little bit of that, but that's not really, <laughs> I mean, that's terrifying. My, my wife is due now in three months or so. 
yeah. So feeling that baby move, it's very cool, but it's also, I mean, I've seen Alien. And it does look like Alien. You think, oh, ha, 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 that's a movie. No, it looks exactly like something trying to push its way through a membrane. Yeah, it's there. Like I was saying before, the personal stuff that's going on is very related to this movie. It's a very, you know, I've been sitting here editing this movie and looking at pregnancy stuff while my wife's in the other room uh, taking her prenatals or whatever. How's your wife feel about you writing a movie about pregnancy that's based off of like you guys in a way? She's fine. She she's a teacher now, but she has a degree in filmmaking. She came up through a screenwriting program, so she likes movies. She was just very happy I made something. And if it had to be about her, then she'll just take the credit for everything. As she deserves to do. Absolutely. I mean, this movie would not have gotten made without her being like, no, it's okay. Just go on, go disappear again for another three days and write this script and film this movie. So absolutely, she deserves all the credit for this happening and you know also having a baby which is scary for me and i can't imagine what that's like i mean it's weird for me to imagine having something moving inside i love you very much katina when you listen to this so uh getting back to the story so it's around april when you finish the movie you start uh the the script i should say and then uh you start fundraising like how long did it take you to raise your budget and how did you determine what your budget was going to be for this my producer, Cindy, she sort of she has enough experience that she could eyeball the outline and, you know, give a range like, oh, I think we could it was somewhere between X and Y. I, I don't remember what the numbers are, but we decided, OK, this is good enough. This is small enough that we can do it for about what we think we can raise. And then it was just a question of writing emails and making phone calls and calling up people that I haven't really communicated with in a year and a half and you know, politely being like, hey, you got money and I know we don't talk that much, but we're acquaintances and you know that I was going to ask for money again. So here I am. Did anything bad happen? Because I think a lot of people are afraid to ask for money because they're afraid someone won't like them if they ask or they'll offend someone. I think that that is a wonderful question because I was so scared of offending people. Like, what if I ask this person for money and they get offended? And not one person, there was nothing bad that happened. And you asking me that now, I don't think I actually put that together for myself. But no, nothing bad happened at all. And uh, it was a really good experience to put myself out there. But absolutely, I was terrified sending emails to people I know, people I, you know, have done work with or are second or third cousins or whatever that, you know, know me and like me. And not only that, weren't surprised by it. So no, there nobody got upset about it. Nobody was angry. I think that's a fantastic question because I certainly know everybody that I've talked to about raising money. It's so scary. And I'm not sure. Well, I know why it is. We could get into the psychology of it, but it, it's scary in a way it doesn't need to be. Right. Well, you know, I think it is scary to ask for money and I, especially from family or friends or people that you're close to. And, uh, and I, I basically asked all my friends, all my friends, all my family, there was like one family member. My mom like didn't want to approach for a while. 
And then we did kind of at the end, and then he he was in, <laughs> and it it completely blew my mom away. She thought that he was gonna like you know ostracize us from the family or something, which was like that's my mom's just very dramatic. But anyways, it's like you never know. The per- person you think is least likely is oftentimes the person who may be in. Our biggest investor came from somebody who I was most nervous to approach. Timeline wise, like when did you actually have all the money in the bank? Was it like June, July, August, November? We had all the money in the bank about three days after we started shooting. That was money we knew was coming. It was just there was uh, somebody who had been out of the country and then they had sent the deposit incorrectly. And so the last big chunk of money, there were just some hoops to jump through. Unfortunately, uh, the production company that I was working with, they were understanding of the situation and were able to... We didn't need that money for the first three days, basically. So we were able to make the movie and they trusted that it would show up and it did. And then we had it in there. I guess a better question is when was the money committed to the movie? We knew we had enough in mid-September because there was a moment where the budget went up at the beginning of September by about 20% because of some effects that I thought were very integral to the movie, some makeup stuff, and just some like, do we want 12 days or 15? And looking at the schedule, 12 would would have been a significant downgrade for us. So we went back and just, we, we found a little bit more money. We went, that That's when I went out to the people I'd been most nervous to ask because I had to, or the movie wasn't going to get made. So it was about mid-September once everything was like, okay, we know we're going to do this. And and how many pages is your script? It was 96. It, it ranged between 90 and 100 by the time we, I, but it was, I was shooting for 90 and I think I got there by the time we shot. Dude, Reed, we're so similar. So my script count was 98 and we had originally aimed for a 15 day shoot. And then we went four days over on that, unfortunately. So how, how did you guys do it in 15? Like, talk to me about how you guys made your days every day. Going crazy, lots of caffeine. We had 12-hour days for three five-day weeks. We just moved very quickly. We shot almost entirely in one location in a house we rented out in Whittier, California, which, if for people not in L.A., is the distant suburbs of LA. So it was, you know, a bit of a hike for everybody. It wasn't in a studio. It was just in a house with neighbors. And we just, every day, I think we had like something, I think the shortest day was 19 setups, but there were days we had up to 40 setups. And it was insane. It was absolutely insane. We went into overtime a little bit every day, which my producer didn't love, but we made it work. Oh, well, that makes me feel a little bit better because I went I went into overtime probably like uh, eight days at least of the of the seventeen or eighteen. So, well, the mistake my producer made was she told me we're shooting from for twelve hours, not we have twelve hours for the crew to be on set. So when I was thinking through stuff in my head, I was like, okay, I got three more hours, not I have two more hours and then the crew needs to break down. So that was a learning process for me over the course of 15 days, like, oh, I need to be done a little early. You also have to get your movie. You also, if you stop at your time every day, 
and you haven't finished your movie, then you've wasted all your money. Is yours a union production? Like, how do you ask the crew or the cast to stay? It was a union production, so everybody just had an overtime rate. It was still low budget, but everybody... or It was not a union crew, but it was, was through payroll, sorry. So everybody got paid overtime. Everybody got the breaks and stuff that are mandated or whatever by whatever they're signed up through. So, you know, overtime did not, so that was a not insignificant part of the budget was the increase in overtime. But certainly by the third week, we were a much better oiled machine. I knew how to shut down stuff sooner. I don't know if you noticed this, but something I'm always fascinated by on film sets is no matter how fast you want people to work at the beginning of the day, they never work as fast as they do at the end of the day. I've experienced the opposite, actually. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, because by the end of the day, we're all worn out, you know, and we're all kind of like our brains. And my brain does not work as well after 10 hours uh, in one place. So, yeah, I have the same experience as you read. Like when when we're nearing the end of the day and it's about to be done and we don't have any more time left, we would move twice as fast in the second half of the day than we would in the first half of the day. And I was always trying to figure out how to get us to come into the day with that kind of like speed, because if we worked as fast as we did in the last two hours, hours of every shoot day uh we would have made our days every day that was just not the attitude like we just we just couldn't do it like we just it was and it wasn't just my crew it was me too like we would just like be too relaxed at the beginning of the day and then it was like when we were under the gun and we like knew we were going to go over that's when we would shoot like four scenes in like you know three hours i'm laughing because that's just exactly note for note the experience and thought process i had i'd be like what can i do so everybody feels this urgency and then i would be like you know i i tried one day you know i came in real energetic like okay let's go we got a lot to do and just same thing no matter what and i don't know what it is about film people i was the same way too it was me also where just the ideas would come faster and the decisions would come so much faster under the gun and maybe that's just the curse of creative people and deadlines i'm jealous of you liz that you didn't experience this yeah me too I'm a morning person, so it sounds like also we have different temperaments. Like in the morning, I'm raring to go. By the end of the day, I'm ready for sleep. So I just want to get everything done as soon as possible. That's possible. That might be it. But I think for me, it was a crew-wide thing. Just everybody. I want to know the the power you have, Liz, to harness the energy of the crew in, in the beginning of the day. Maybe you should do a seminar just or something. Just extreme anxiety. It's what works for every single <laughs> other aspect of my life. It's just pure intensity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So what kind of crew did you have? Was it like about a 20-person crew, 25-person crew? About a 20, 25 person crew uh, went up and down depending on the day. There were a couple of really big days that we brought in a second camera. So so that sped stuff up a little bit. We brought in a couple of people for days when we just had a lot of setups. And so we gave the camera crew another extra person to move lights faster. So yeah, some, I think it was anywhere between 20 to 32 or so on the biggest day. Oh, and then was the whole crew like living out where you guys were shooting or did were you all tr- uh, commuting to that, to that area? Or? Everybody was commuting uh, except for one actor and a producer who the actor was a older woman and she just, it was easier for her to get a hotel. And my producer lives not in LA. So she drove up from her place and stayed in a hotel for during the shoot. And how far was 
was the location from general like Los Angeles? It was like a 40 minute drive every day, half hour, Four, hour? 45 minutes for me and I'm in Glendale. So and it was east. So it was 45 minutes plus for everybody. So it was a hike. It was a hike. It was not like convenient for pretty much anybody. The parallels are insane, Reed. So that was the same for my crew. Like everybody was about 45 minutes to an hour from Palo Alto for the most part. We had like a couple people who lived in Palo Alto, like one of our leads and uh, our mate, one of our makeup artists. We had a, a couple of different makeup artists, but there were some people who lived locally. And then I, I moved there for the shoot and then we put up um, as many people as we could. So we probably had like six to seven of the casting crew living there. Like we believed we wanted to be there. And then we had one guy who lived in Petaluma. So like he had to obviously be there. We had like a couple crew from Los Angeles. So it was sort of like, you know, we would put people up who needed to be put up. And then the rest, we sort of um, they just commuted. There were other people on the crew that we offered to put up. And they, every single one of them, they just, no, I want to drive the hour and sleep in my own bed. I thought about staying there, but I missed my dogs. And it was 45 minutes, so I would go home every night. But I certainly, it would have been nice to be closer. 40, that's It's hard on, a lo- on those long days. Yeah, an hour and a half extra on a, on a 12 to 13 hour day already is like this makes it a really long day i was lucky during the shoot my parents you know were obviously very excited for me and because my wife was pregnant i i asked them to come out and help help some so they would so basically my one of them would either drive me to set or take me home every day and then they would lift uh their back whichever and then i would come home and my mom would have made f- a fresh dinner that wasn't like carry out again oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> adorable it was fantastic i i know some people you know wouldn't want to have their parents like coming to set every day but it was it was great it was like having an assistant i mean it is that's what parenting is from what i hear (laughs) right liz do you have any other like before production questions because i have a bunch of production questions i just want to talk about the babies but ask your production questions i'll think of things we we did have a baby come to set one day for the production so when we get there we can talk about Oh, okay, it's cool. adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> so cute. So I guess my main questions are like, what was your relation to the crew? Had you worked with any of these people before or were they all people that your producer had found? What was that experience like? Well, my producer, like I said, Cindy and I, we worked on this short five years ago and then we've just been friends uh, the whole time. And then she brought in a good chunk of the crew, most of the non lesser creative crew, like the AD she brought in. She brought in sound, like the real technical stuff. The cinematographer, I went through probably four or five hundred reels because all the people that I knew either the the investors that we did get one of the things I promised them was that everybody on the set would be more experienced than me that was one of the big pitches in the investment package so every department head had to have done at least one feature if not multiple features which made them feel a lot more comfortable so I went through a bunch of I I think 400 cinematography reels and found a bunch I liked and we reached out to them and none of them were available but one of them had a friend who she recommended that ended up being fantastic Laura Jansen who just took beautiful pictures there was one makeup artist who was a friend who did some of the special effects makeup that came in for a couple of days but basically it was my producer bringing in people I did have some I did a veto power, which I didn't end up using on anybody, I think. 
but if there was somebody I really didn't like, I did try and meet with everybody because I do like having, I think it's important, especially when you're not paying people their rates to have a friendly set, to have a fun, nice place to come to work when you're not getting paid your normal rate. Did you have any uh, issues in that department, like any disgruntled crew members or people that you had to like let go or anything like that? Whenever you have 30 people working together who don't know each other, you always wind up with some issues. I try and be very friendly, but certainly when I'm anxious and stressed out, I can get a little snippy. And there were a couple of times when I, you know, would snip about something and then have to go back later and, you know, like, okay, so you did this and I shouldn't have said this at that point, but next time let's do that. And uh, we worked, we worked through everything. Uh, we, we, we got the movie in the end, the, if anybody that I didn't get along, there were no fights. There were no like, oh, I can't stand you. You're fired. There were just some personalities that clashed a little bit, but it was all in service of how do we make the best movie. Right. So you just worked through those things. You know, there was no firings, no replacements. Nothing like that. Uh, there was some technical stuff that in the last week that I believe somebody was replaced, but it was very technical and like time code issues. And I legitimately do not know the story, but somebody was replaced because of that on the last week. But I legitimately don't know what happened. Oh, actually, I do. There, there is one replacement that I do remember. Our craft services got replaced in the middle of the second week. Food is obviously very important on a film set. The craft services and catering company we had hired, they weren't filling requests and they weren't filling like the dietary restriction needs that you have on a film set. Cause you know, every there with 30 people, especially creatives, like they're vegans and vegetarians and allergies and I don't eat seafood and I don't eat red meat. And so there's a lot of different things and they weren't bringing them. So we replaced the craft services team and I have, never seen a group of people so happy coming into work to find somebody new there because the new craft services people were just it, it was like going from a 7-eleven to a walmart <laughs> that's amazing that's such a great uh analogy of and i like i have the visual in my head of what that looks like uh craft services wise yeah food food seems to be something that always ends up i was on a movie where the Catering got fired twice in the first week. So, you know, it was like one and then another and then they got a third one. But Liz, have you ever had food issues on any of your movies? Well, just like every movie, both movies, just two that I've made always have to have breakfast burritos. And I don't request this. It just is the magical thing that happens and it makes everyone happier. So now it's like a mandate in the contract. Breakfast burritos at least once during the shoot. Yeah, we had hot breakfast. Uh, we tried to have hot breakfast every day, but we, we had a very unique catering experience. Uh, one of my producers decided to cook for everybody. So he made breakfast every morning and he made the lunch every day. So it was very different, but everyone really appreciated it. And it was really great. You know, he was late like maybe five times for lunch, which was definitely an issue. Um, but, uh, you know, I think... They made up for it. And, you know, we almost always had a second meal because we were shooting so far away from reality that, you know, if we wrapped at 11, there wasn't really food around. So we just always had some kind of snack at the end of the day just to, like, kind of help people on their long drive home, you know. 
Yeah, you got to take care of people. I mean, I, I know people who've gotten hurt in car accidents driving home from sets. So it's important that you feed them, that you offer them a place to stay if they're late. Every day we went in overtime, we always said, if you don't feel safe driving home, we'll take care of it. Because you, you have to treat yeah, people well. you have to. I mean, there's that film, um, God, it's a whole documentary about people about the film industry and how we uh, perpetuate this horrible tradition of like not sleeping. It's like, why not sleep? I think it's what it's called. It's about like the deaths that have occurred because of lack of sleep on set. Yeah. And so that's just, I mean, obviously I'd feel terrible for that. So, you know, you just, we have to take care of people and the food was the big thing. The food I'd lost about five pounds, the first half of the shoot and put it all back on and more by with the second catering company. But I was much happier and I was thinking much clearer. So you shot in 15 days. Did you have to go back and do any kind of pickups? We, or? we actually just a week ago, last Wednesday, did a day of pickups, which included a new opening scene, which was a fun experience. Uh, I had written this movie that was intended to be a very slow burn. And it is, and it turns out, and people like that, but in the, the feedback we were getting with the early cuts was like, I didn't know this was a horror movie for a while so we had to go go back and add a scene at the beginning which i'm actually very excited about we shot that one in my house which was a fun experience we added something that really sets the tone a lot better and introduces the characters in a fun little way and plus just you know getting this insert that we didn't get in this exterior shot that we didn't get just little things like that but we had a day of, of reshoot pickups uh just last wednesday that looks really nice in the the cut and did you finish the whole rough cut before you started uh you did the the pickups we had an assembly cut done a week after the movie finished because my editor is a crazy person I, she's great she's fantastic but she just edits 18 hours a day or something like that was she on set editing with you and assembling no she was okay. uh, at her place she she was assembling and communicating with my producer and would be like, hey, can we do this scene one more time? There were there were two scenes we reshot during the shoot, which was so helpful. And just was able to like, hey, be careful. You crossed the line there. And that was weird. So if you cross the line here, but go get this other shot and it fixes it. But next time, don't do that. So were you handing drives off to her at the end of every shoot day? Yeah, uh, they would go home with our DIT and then she our DIT would drive them over, I believe, on the, her way to set the next day. I'm so jealous. I didn't have any of that. I'm editing the movie right now. You know, I'm about like a fifth of the way in. It's a ticking a long time <laughs> to do. I kind of wish that I had just figured out a way to hire an editor, but we didn't know have any money. Yeah, it was something I'd been pushing for and we didn't think we were going to get. And at the last minute, it was two things. It was basically, if we don't have an editor, the movie's not going to be done before my baby comes out. And that's not something I want. Really want to be done this movie before then, as much as possible, at least. But it was that, and then we were we had been looking at name actors for one of the roles, and then that wasn't coming through. So we decided to take some of that money and spend it on a couple other things that we were hoping to get. And the editor was the top of the list to have somebody working during the shoot. Ulrich, this there's still time for you to bring in another editor for your project. I feel like this is like a very interesting 
um, therapy session where two films are being compared and one feels bad and one <laughs> feels better. I don't know what it is. But I wanted to talk about casting, actually, because I really, all throughout pregnancy, I kept saying I'm going to make a movie about how horrific this is. And I was dying to make a movie. And I think it was probably going to end up something very similar to what, what you made read, except for maybe not a witch doctor. But I guess my question is, in casting of horror we often refer to like these um, certain actors who will genre actors who will do a lot of horror horror fair. Was that your target, or were you? How were you looking at casting? We were aiming a little bit higher than sort of the horror people. The 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 feedback because we we brought in a sales guy very early. His name's Glenn something. Uh, he works with uh, Circus Road. It Circus was Circus Road, Road but yes, now it's it Blood Sweat Honey. Uh, I, I didn't know they changed their name. Uh, the email I was just looking at last week still said Circus Road. Oh, they yes. might have they might have split. I just want to make sure. Oh, I'm okay. Right but yeah, but on. yes, it it is Glenn from Circus Road or whatever. But we brought him on, and he's been sort of advising us. And the feedback we got from him was that some of these lower budget, quote unquote, horror actors, uh, especially in the last year or two, just the distributors have been a lot more wary about like, oh, it's got Robert Eglund in it. So let's give you all of your budget back just based on that. But Robert Eglund is amazing. Let's just be clear and let's just state this on the podcast for the record. Okay. Fantastic. That okay. it, it wasn't a quality of acting thing. Cool. It was more cool, just cool. like, is this person valuable for their quote and for what we're spending on the movie versus is it better to put it on screen in a more direct way. Well, I guess that's pretty direct hiring a name actor, but so we went out to some people and just the people we were looking at, we were probably aiming a little too high, but just they weren't interested. And then it just got too close to production. And we had a backup for that role who turned out to be a fantastic actor in that role is uh, somebody, you know, does bit parts on TV here and there, but no, no name. I think part of what happened is we were just on a very tight timeline. By the time we knew we had money for cast, we didn't have enough time to get the cast we needed. I guess I'm curious what, what Glenn said, because very often when I talk to filmmakers, I say, you know, when you make horror, you don't necessarily need cast because you have horror on your side. Did you console yourself with that argument or? A hundred percent. And I, that, that's, that's almost word for word what Glenn said when I talked to him and was like, oh, I'm really worried about this big investment that's being made and we don't have a name. And he was like, yeah, it might be nice to have a B or C person, but it's horror. You're on a low budget. Of all the places you can be without a name actor, this is pretty, I mean, it's film, but it's pretty safe for film, which is still a huge risk, but... <laughs> Same words from my producer was like, at this budget level, you know, we can't get the kind of actor that's going to make a difference to us. So just get the best actors possible and lean into the genre and you'll be fine. Yep. Basically. Th that's the exact advice I got. Yeah, lots of uh, other filmmakers who'd been on the show had given me that same advice. Like, um, you know, Brett and Drew Pierce said the same thing. The Just Shoot It guys gave me that same advice. Like, pretty much... Most people I talked to were like Lisa Donato, who has been on the show before. Uh, she had made a over a million dollar movie and they couldn't get any uh, notable cast, you know, with with over a million dollars and making offers. She was like, don't even if I couldn't get it done with time and a budget and you have no time and no budget, like there's no way you're going to be able to get anybody. So, so just make peace with that now and get the best actors you can. The thing that I had been told that 
in addition to just for the investment return on the movie that I wanted to name was somebody early on in the process. I was talking to them about, you know, me and my career and what I want out of this was saying that, you know, you don't need a name directing a feature is great, but if you can say, Oh, I directed that actor that does to some people give you a little more cachet or whatever, uh, when you go in the room to pitch whatever's next. And so that, would have been nice to have but uh like you like you're saying it's just not possible unless you're best friends with the guy or the woman or whoever it is did you have any supporting cast or anything any cameos nothing like that nope nothing like that we we talked about it and one of my producers that's on it who is a huge horror fan and she her opinion was that every time she watches a horror movie and then you know some celebrity comes on for five minutes it just takes her out of the movie so we decided not to go for any like small celebrity parts because there was nothing that wouldn't be distracting that's the same exact route i went we were trying to get you know some sort of supporting actor of, of note to be this one character that was a one day thing and it just didn't pan out for us so i ended up casting locally and I found this guy who is so interesting. This person is he's such a unique individual and a good actor on this, on top of it that it was just like this special thing. And I'm like way more happy with that than I would have been if we got like Eric Roberts to be in it for a day. No offense, right? Eric Roberts. But. I'm going to say the counter opinion because um, I think that outside of the genre space, you absolutely have to have name cast. It's the most important thing in the world. <laughs> and I'm going to say that till I die. That's actually, that's very true. Everything I was told was, you're doing horror, so it's okay. If you were doing literally anything else, it would not be okay. I, I, I definitely got that advice too. I think it's it still counts for like sci-fi and thriller to to an extent. I mean... You That's know, horror genre. is special. Yeah. That is genre. Yeah. I think a little lesser, though. The, the I think horror is specifically in genre sell, sells a little better than sci-fi or thrill. If you look at the sci-fi thrillers that tend to get sold on the lower budget, a lot of them have sort of horror elements in a way. And I think... Right. Which, I, which we have. So, right, yeah. you know... Yeah. yeah, but but certainly once you're out of genre entirely, then you absolutely need a cast unless you're, you know, making a movie for 10 grand with your buddies in your house, which is great, but it's not going to sell in the same way. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not trying to say I never want to work with known actors. Please, of course. Yeah, yes, please. Uh, all of them. Call, and, uh, call, fancy call actors, both, of course. Please. Yeah, but um, I think like when you're working on your first movie and you don't have any money uh, and you, you know, you have like this thing that's going to be more demanding of the actors. In a lot of ways, it's probably better to go with unknowns because, I mean, the things I put my actors through, I, oh my God, like it, it was insane. And uh, the what, uh, especially Ed had to do in such a small amount of time, if he hadn't had the free rehearsal time that he gave us and the prep that he gave us without, you know, asking for days on those, I don't know how he would have done it because like, you know, if, you, if you're going to go with a SAG actor who's coming from Los Angeles to be in your movie, like they're going to come the day before and then it's going to be jumping right in. And we had stunts. We had fight sequences. We had visual effects things. We had live casting we had to do. It's just like it would have been so much more difficult to do it with somebody who wasn't giving themselves to the movie the way that my actors were. So that was sort of one of the reasons why I ended up doing that because I just thought that it would 
it would be better for the movie in the end. And I think it ended up being that way. Cause I could, I couldn't imagine like this one guy that I met with who's, uh, you know, in TV in a big name show, like he was great and we had a really great conversation and I think he would have been awesome in the role, but the things that I asked of Ed, if I asked them of him, no way. <laughs> I just don't think it would have happened. Plus, you know, if Ed's listening to this, Ed's performances are incredible. So I think besides all those other reasons, I just made the right choice just on the fact that he's such a good actor. I mean, the person we ended up with for the role that we had put out offers on just turned out to be just absolutely fantastic. And I think that happens a lot on movies that if you keep yourself open creatively and emotionally or whatever, if A doesn't work out, you can find a way to make B better than A. A lot, I and mean, that was true on shots and scenes and lines of dialogue and casting and production design and editing and just everything that we've run into. If you can find a creative way around the problem and be open to not what you thought it was the first time or the first try, that that was where a lot of the best stuff came out of. The last sort of thing I want to talk about briefly was what's your plans with the movie now? Like, are you tar targeting certain film festivals? Uh, do you already have a sales agent that you're working with? What's uh, what's your strategy? We have a sales agent. The Glen at Circus Road is uh, repping film in the U.S. And if there's a worldwide deal, I believe he'd be involved in that. But the plan right now is to go to film festivals. I would love to get into, you know, Fantastic Fest or Sundance Late Night or Toronto After Midnight or whatever. But saying like, oh, that's my plan is not logical or reasonable and stuff that would be great but we're gonna go out toronto to toronto after dark by the way just to give those guys a shout out um th th they're a great film festival i love those guys so you know those things would be lovely but you can't rely on them i know if you rely on them that's a failed sales strategy we're gonna enter for probably fantastic fest this year which is in september and then there's a couple more over the next six months that are on sort of the bigger level that we're gonna wait and see where we can get a good premiere and if those don't pan out then we have sort of your slightly lower tier film festivals that we'll go to and during this whole process our sales agent will be talking to distributors and aggregators or whoever is looking to buy stuff and if we get a good offer before we get into festivals we'll go with that are you gonna do are you south by southwest for next year or are you gonna skip that one well, I, I don't know when the deadline is that, but that was certainly on the list. I, I just, I've forgotten the, the South by Southwest. They wanted to look at something in Europe that I don't remember. So there's one in Canada that's fantastic, um, Fantasia, which is on our radar as well. And, and those guys, Brett and Drew, who were on the show, they got into Fantasia and then they got into uh, Toronto After Dark after that. Stegis is a one or Stigis yes, in that's, Spain. That's, the one. that's a huge one. Stitches. Damn it. No, sit I was going to wrong. <laughs> S-I-T-G-E-S, I believe. Yeah, I think yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's a really big one for, for uh, genre. That's awesome. That's a great plan. Oh, and then Shriekfest and, and Screamfest Shriek in Fest, Los Angeles. Shriekfest, um, uh, what's it yeah, called? Those there, are good there's ones. one in Salt Lake City that uh, whose name is escaping me. Fantastics. It's not Fantastic Fest, but there's something in Salt Lake City that I'm not remembering right now. Okay, I don't, I don't think I know that one. But yeah, so that that's sort of where we're looking. Then we'll see where we end up. Uh, you know, there there's a ton of places that horror goes now. Everything from... 
I mean, Netflix has a huge horror library. There's Shutter. There's you know, and those are there. There's other streaming things that are picking stuff up. And then you know, there's your more traditional. You know, maybe a couple of small theaters here and there. And then you know, go VOD or whatever. And we'll see what we end up with. I've not been too involved with that over the last couple months because we've been in production. But those conversations have been going on without me uh, for a couple of weeks at least. There's like two approaches I see, right? Like you could do, yeah, like ju- like if your movie's done in the summer, you just jump right into like all the uh, or the or the late spring, I guess. But if you just you jump into like the film festivals like Fantastic Fest, Fantasia, and Scream Fest and Shriek Fest and all those genre ones that are all happening like late summer, early fall, right? Or you wait until later in the fall to or like the summer to submit to like you know, TIFF and Sundance and South by Southwest for next year and Tribeca and like try to go for a higher level premiere. It's like depending on the movie you're making and like what you think the quality level is will determine if that's the right move or not, you know? That's where we're at. We're going to see what kind of reactions we get once we really start screening a more complete product and see. Like, I know it's good. I'm happy with it. But is it let's try for Sundance good? We'll see. I like it. I like it a lot. But if uh, 10 people say, nah, probably not, then that's probably not worth our time. I basically just listen to my producer on these things, like let him (laughs) guide me. I think when we first started the movie, he was thinking, no, we're not really a Sundance movie. Maybe South by Southwest, but, you know, let's just target all the genre film festivals. And then after making the movie or at some point, I don't know when it was, the conversation kind of shifted and it was more like, well, maybe this is a Sundance midnight movie or maybe this is a a TIFF movie potentially. Um, I don't know why that, that conversation changed in that way. But yeah, so that's sort of where we're at right now. But I mean, when the first rough cut's done and we're looking at some of the visual effects, maybe the conversation will flip the other direction. But we basically just don't want to rush it. You know, we don't want to like hit a Fantasia deadline of April or March if the movie's just not going to be ready by then, you know? You don't want to rush your movies. I mean, I say this as somebody, I did submissions for a film festival for two years. And yeah, film festivals will look at stuff that's unfinished, but unless it's, you know, the godfather but missing like a couple of seconds of music, it's not going to sell to the... View, the the person watching it isn't going to see what the finished product should look like so rushing it for that those kinds of things just it seems like a waste of money yeah i'd rather wait to like even if we decided it wasn't a sundance movie i'd rather wait to like south by southwest of next year as the big one than try to rush it for um stitches is that i'm not saying it right again but uh th- for this year you know but anyways yeah that's awesome um liz do you have any final questions or anything no <laughs> Liz, Liz never has final questions. I, so I have funny. a question for you, Ulrich, actually. Oh, okay. I'm sure. Hit me. I'm curious how you were on set. I am a very anxious, stressed out person by nature. And uh, Liz, you can answer this question too if you want. But I found that I had to make a very specific effort to not, I don't know, go crazy at the end of every day and really like stay sane and stay grounded. And I was just wondering if that's just me and my anxiety or if you found some of that too. 
Have you listened to? Oh, you haven't listened to Ulrich's post set reports like I have. No, I I, pro- I, oh. I listened to some of them, but not so all. So much of them. joy is coming your way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I think I start pretty positive of the day always, you know, and then I think by the end of the day I'm a little bit more frustrated. But I, I always try to keep the positivity up on set, you know, because I don't want to. Um, yeah, bring bring the crew down because like usually everyone like at least on my experience like my crew was really happy like they a lot of people were working together with people they worked with a bunch everyone had a really good time and I think the people that were the most stressed out on the movie were like me my AD and the cinematographer <laughs> like we were the ones who were like sweating bullets you know and everyone else was like la di da you know. <laughs> I had a little corner at the house we were shooting at that I could go step around and freak out for 60 seconds when I needed it. Yeah, I think I had like probably two or three days where I I really like kind of lost it, you know, and was either pulling my cinematographer aside and having inappropriate conversations about how long things were taking during set or like, you know, I went to go to the bank to get money for the crew and was like ranting in my car about how bad it was that's actually recorded on uh one of the updates yeah but i think most of the time i was really just trying to enjoy the experience and just trying to stay focused and giving the actors what they needed and giving the the team what they needed to do their jobs well you know it was definitely challenging it was like one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life if not the hardest thing so uh you know i kept thinking oh i'm doing this podcast it's called making movies is hard and for me that was that was what was really hard was just the whole process. It's draining and tiring. And the way people told me, but I didn't listen. You know, no matter how like prepared you think you are for what it's going to be like and how you're aware of how hard it's going to be or the challenge or the demands, you won't really know until you're there. But Liz, I want your answer to this question. What do you like on set? I mean, I was just thinking how I was pregnant and then miscarried on set. So like I was dealing Jeez. with like some other issues wow. at the same time. But I found, and I mentioned this on all, on our show before, that listening to Van Halen in the morning and then you know not letting anyone see what a horrible time you're having are the two ways to get through the day is you know like only Sean my partner saw all of the the cracks through the veneer I would say but then Van Halen really got me through so yeah I mean I think that's important to, like to, to to say like no matter how hard it is for you like trying not to show that strain to the crew and the cast is really important <laughs> absolutely that was a struggle but it's a worthwhile one. And Van Halen. And Van Halen. Why does no one ever follow up with the Van Halen comment? It's always like silence. (laughs) I love Van Halen, by the way. I listen to Van Halen probably on a daily basis. So (laughs) to me, it's like, yeah, of course, Van Halen. I get it, you know. I had at least two Van Halen songs on the playlist I would listen to on the mornings I was like taking an Uber to set because I was too tired. So Right, so my throwaway comment, it's like everyone relies on Van Halen to get through a film shoot. This is the secret. Yeah, rock and roll has definitely helped me uh, in a big way. Like, well, because like I was recording my logs on my drive to set every morning, so I was usually talking. But then I would oftentimes like try to have at least you know one or two songs before the log or one or two songs after the log to like just sort of get out. But I'm a random person, so I usually would shuffle through like whatever randomly would pop up and I'd find something that fit my mood. Anyways, this has been great. <laughs> Uh, Reed, any last things you want to say? Last thoughts on, on Bloodborne that you want to express to the world? Well, I had a blast making it. 
it was the hardest thing I've ever done and will be, that will be true for, I think the next two and a half months at this point, but it's just, it's been a fantastic experience. And I, I'm very lucky that I was able to do something I've been talking about doing since I was a kid, you know, just remembering how many people are trying to do this and how lucky we are that we have found a way to get to do it. And I hope to God I get to do it again. But if I don't like, it was really cool. It was really cool. That's really a nice way to put it. I mean, yeah, I feel the same way, basically. It was a, th a dream to do something that I've been trying to do for so long, and I really hope I get the chance to do it again one day. It was so. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Absolutely. And then before we wrap up, where should people go if they want to learn more about you and Bloodborne? Instagram at Bloodborne Movie. For the movie, my Instagram, which I rarely post on, but is basically all movie related, is read.jargon. And then at Bloodborne Movie on Facebook, which is basically just most of the stuff from Instagram. Yeah, we should be having some more material going up over the next few months. And uh, yeah. Thanks for listening and thanks to Reed for being on the fabulous show. We already heard where we can find his work, so thank you for sharing that, Reed. Um, you can check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about, including probably, hopefully, pictures of my flat tire. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I'm at Liz Manish on Twitter and Instagram, uh, even though it's private. And Ulrich, where can you be found? I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty active there. Alternate Film on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Amazing. Quick reminder to check out our Patreon page to, if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Reach out via email. Come bug us. And thank you uh, for listening. Yes. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Ray. <laughs> thank you, thank Reed, you, for Ray. being on the show. Man. I'll take it. <laughs> oh my god. All right guys, talk to you guys next week. All right, well thanks for listening. Thanks to Reed Shusterman and John Snyder for being on the show. Check out our website makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I am Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. And Ulrich, where are you? I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram and I'll just Ulrich Brissell on Facebook. And um, I'll respond to everybody who reaches out to me. <laughs> it's true. I've seen it. Um, if you like the show, tell a friend. Help us get the word out. And finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holtman, Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Colby Crow, the entire Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to you all next week. Okay, let me do that again. Sorry, Colby. Get used to this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>